think we finished up Genesis chapter 11 uh, last year. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, there's so much material uh, in there. And we said that Genesis 1 through 11 takes us on a, a wide view of the creation of the world, of the creation of humanity, of the, uh, gr- the growth, the population growth of the world. It also takes us on a journey through the growth of sin in the world, from one act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden uh, to the murder of, of Abel by Cain. Uh, and then we just saw sin and the effects of sin just progress and progress and progress till the whole earth was filled with violence and sin and the flood. And we saw God's judgment in the flood. But that still didn't stop the sin problem. Uh, when nations began to multiply and they began to build cities, they were of one language, and then they tried to build a tower that would reach up to heaven to become like, like gods on the earth. And of course, we saw God come down and confound the language, scatter the people all throughout the earth. And uh, we come here to Genesis chapter 12, and we go from a wide view of humanity and creation, and now we're going to take a very narrow look to look at the whole world to looking at one man and one family, which would ultimately become one nation. And this is ultimately how God is going to deal with the problem of sin and how he would bring about redemption. That promise that we found in Genesis chapter 3 of, of the, the serpent would be crushed by the offspring of a woman. And we're going to find that that ultimate offspring would be Jesus Christ. But how do we get to Jesus? Well, we get to Jesus through a long lineage of people. And it begins here in Genesis chapter 12. We're actually going to begin in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, so we're going to read a passage in Genesis chapter 11. And today we want to cover the life of a man named Abraham. We're all familiar with Abraham, but we're going to look in an overview of, of his life. Certainly we're not going to be able to dig into the details of Scripture too much, but uh, we do want to look at his life. We want to look at the main events in his life and what the overall theme of his life is. And his, the overall theme of his life is the covenant that God makes with him, the promises that God makes with Abraham. For every biblical story is part of a large overarching storyline, and that is the storyline of redemptions. So as the world plunges in darkness from Genesis 3 to 11, we see a light of hope on the horizon here in Genesis chapter 12. As God's image bearers were cursed with sin, and all of humanity was cursed with sins, and they went in this, this cycle of sin and rebellion and death, now the focus is on bringing through a Redeemer, bringing a Redeemer through this man named Abraham. So we're going to um, have a new beginning. Have a new beginning. We had a beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we had another beginning uh, after the flood with Noah. Now we're going to kind of have another new beginning through Abraham and through what is called the patriarchs. So that's what we're going to begin to talk about today is the patriarchs. What we talk about when we talk about Genesis 12 through you know, 50 is what we call patriarchal history. It tells the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then ending with Joseph, even though Joseph isn't technically considered a patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. Uh, but this patriarchal history is these three are the fountainhead of our faith. And through them, God's going to establish a family. 
And ultimately, this family is going to be made into a nation that will have a special covenant with God, and they would be his light in the world to the other Gentile nations. So we're going to begin here in Genesis chapter 11, and I want to read beginning in verse 27. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, his son of Haran, his grandson, Sarah, his daughter-in-law, the son of Sarah's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So in chapter 11, we find this the backstory to what's happened in chapter 12. If you notice in these few verses that we read, we're introduced to three main characters that we're going to see throughout the next several chapters, and that is Abraham, Lot, and Sarah. And if you notice here in the account of Terah, it's the note that Sarah is barren, that she has no child. All of this is going to play a huge part in the story that we are going to look at. So the focus today, we're going to look from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Abram's, uh, Abraham's death in Genesis chapter 25, um, where God will birth a new nation uh, to be his people, to make a covenant with them, to give them a land that they might be a light unto the world. Uh, if you notice on your paper, we also have uh, just an outline of the events of Abraham's life in Genesis. I'm not going to read all of those. Uh, we're going to talk about many of them today, but there you just have a brief outline of what's going on in, in each chapter. Then as we come to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham. Now I know his name gets changes, changed from Abram to Abraham, Sarah. To, I'm just going to say Abraham and Sarah the whole time, okay, just, just to be simple about it. Um, sometimes I like to be picky, just, but I'm just going to call him Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is so important to all of world history. Abraham is the considered the father of arguably the three greatest and largest religions uh, in the world and in history, and that is Judaism, that's Christianity, and that is Islam. All three trace their origins and history back to Abraham. And we're going to see that Abraham has two sons to begin with, Ishmael and, and Isaac. The Jews and the Christians trace their lineage, either their faith lineage as Christians or their uh, ethnic lineage as Jews through Abraham's son Isaac. Uh, Islam traces its origins to Abraham through uh, Ishmael. So Abraham is a very important person uh, with a lot of uh, history. What's fascinating is up until the point in Genesis chapter 12, we don't know much about Abraham's life. He's 75 year, years old in Genesis chapter 12. We don't know a whole lot. One of the things that we do know uh, comes from Joshua 24 and verse number 2. And Joshua 24 and 2 says this. It says, Long ago your ancestors, 
Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. So that's what Joshua writes in Joshua 24 when he's talking about the history of the nation of Israel. He goes back to Abraham and Terah and he says, they lived beyond the Euphrates and Ur of the Chaldeans, as we've already seen, and they served other gods. So with this hint there in chapter 24 of Joshua, a lot of questions can pop up. You know, I want to know some of those details. You know, me being, you know, loving the history of the Bible, I want to know what was going on. I want to know what was going on. Number one, I want to know, why did God choose Abraham to begin with? Out of all the people in the world, all over the places, why did he go into essentially Babylon to Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, and, and find a man named Abram? Why did God choose him? We, we're not told why God chose Abraham. Uh, we're not told how Abraham knew of, of Yahweh when God came to him and spoke to him. Did Abraham know what was happening, who was speaking to him? Uh, we don't even really know Abraham's reaction. We know he ultimately obeyed the voice of God, but we don't know his reaction of, you know, who was speaking to me, how was he speaking to me, who is this God? Because obviously Abraham and his family had served other gods in Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, we're not really told why Terah took his family and, and moved out to go to Iran. So there's a lot of unanswered questions that we have. But Abraham, who you could really define as a refugee from Mesopotamia, ends up in Haran and gets called by God uh, to begin a covenant that would change the world. Uh, so I would love to know a little bit more of the backstory on on Abraham and this, but we have the details that the scripture gives us here. So even without these details, Genesis 12 starts when Abraham is instructed to take a drastic action. And that action is to separate himself from his father, from his father's house, obviously from his father's inheritance and his past and everything that defined him to this point. And God says, I'm going to do something new through you. So God asked Abraham to leave his land, his family, his, his inheritance, to start his own family, to go into his own land, to have a new inheritance. Uh, and those words are so important to biblical theology and to the world itself. For in chapter 12, we have what we find here as God's promises or God's covenant uh, to Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, I want to read beginning in verse number 1, just read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you will I curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let me just read a couple more verses. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place called Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So God makes several promises to Abraham here. Known as his covenant that he makes, even though the covenant will be ratified a couple of chapters later. But he makes these promises, and notice these promises, we have them on on your paper there. The first thing he does is he promises, I will make of you a great nation. I'll make of you a great nation. Second thing he says is, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you and to whom who dishonors you, I will curse. Or the King James says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. It says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's leading up to the gospel of Jesus. And then in verse number six, it says, it says to your offspring, or verse seven, six and seven, to your offspring, I will give this land. So really God's promises to Abraham is I'm going to give you a family and a land. I'm going to make a great nation out of you and I'm going to put you into a promised land. Well, the issue is Abraham doesn't have any children. And right now he doesn't have a land. He's a sojourner. He's just wandering uh, through the world, moving from one place to another, having one instance to another. So he has no family or no son to have a family through, and he has no land of his. So that's the complication that we come with with Abraham. And what is God going to do? How is he going to bring apart, or how is he going to bring about these things? One of the things I noticed here, um, you know, is that when he leaves, he takes Lot with him. You know, I, I don't know if somehow he thinks Lot is going to be the heir, you know, considering that. We've already heard in chapter 11 that Sarah was barren and that she had no children. Uh, we know that in a few moments we'll talk about how you know, Abraham would consider Eleazar his heir. And then we'll find later on that how Abraham has a son through uh, their servant Hagar. You consider them the heir. So we're kind of going through different people you know, as we're trying to work out who is this great nation and this great family going to come through. So we've got to have a great nation. So Abraham has to have children. In fact, we'll find out he's going to be the father of many nations. So he's going to have many children. Uh, his name will be great. Uh, those who bless him will be blessed. Those who curse him will be cursed. And in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's leading up to Jesus. Uh, I want to read a verse. I didn't put it down here, but I want to read a verse um, from Luke. So if you're writing, you may just want to, not from Luke, but from uh, Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, of course, this is after um, the sermon at Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit um, fell. They had healed a lame man in the temple. And then the apostles speak, and in Acts chapter 3, verse number 25, let's see if I want to read more than that. We'll start then. Verse 25, this is what the apostles say to the people, the Jews who are here, hearing the gospel for the first time. He says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, 
And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first, sent him to you Jews first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So in the preaching of the gospel, the apostles declare that this is the fulfillment of what God spoke to Abraham, that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And God sent Jesus, obviously, to the Jews first, and the gospel went to the Jews first, that God would bless them first because they were the children of Abraham. And then the gospel would go to the other nations to prove that all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. So there we find that fulfillment of, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed through Jesus. And then the last promise is that to you and your offspring I will give this land. Or here's the deal, they're in the land of Canaan. That land is already occupied by Canaanites. Uh, we're even told here that you know at that time the Canaanites were in the land. So it's already occupied by people. But God tells Abraham, I will give you this land. Land. So we have these seemingly impossible promises that's given to Abraham. But yet, despite that, Abraham goes. And he leaves from Haran, and he leaves his father, and he goes on this journey. And these promises that God made to Abraham, they're, they're unconditional promises. Yes, there are things that Abraham does, but he does them by faith. But Abraham enters these promises of God by faith. Abraham is assured that all the families of the earth will be blessed. The long-term vision in Genesis and the whole of the Old Testament is that the ultimate reign of sin would be broken in the world and it will become what its creator ultimately intended. In Abraham, mankind sets out toward this goal, but the path is far from straight. The primary approach of the narrator here is to introduce various obstacles that place the covenant promises in jeopardy. As each obstacle is surmounted, a successive step is introduced toward the fulfillment of the covenant promises. So what we're going to see in the rest of our study through Abraham's life is we have these promises that are seemingly impossible on the surface. With man, it's impossible, but we know with God, all things are possible. But the road to these promises are not easy, for there are many obstacles that seemingly try to get in the way of these promises being fulfilled or being fulfilled in a way other than what God had intended. So here we've, we're going to list some obstacles and events to the covenant. And this is going to take us uh, from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Genesis chapter 25 and Abraham's death. So let's look at these. Again, we're not going to turn to all these. We don't have time to, to turn to all of these. So Hopefully you can take that and you can go back and read through it. But obstacle number one is right after we have this promise to Abraham, there's a famine in the land of Canaan. Now, God has brought him to the land of Canaan. You know, and these are things that don't make sense. You know, I hope me and, and Jesus get to sit down in heaven and so I can ask him some questions. You know, like, number one, you've had Abraham in the land already. Why didn't you just give it to him there? Uh... But instead, there's a famine in the land, and Abraham immediately leaves the land of promise uh, to go into uh, Egypt. So we have Abraham 
going down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land. Verse number 10 of chapter 12 tells us there's a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. So no sooner than he reached Canaan, uh, he had to leave because of a famine. Uh, when he's there, they notice the beauty of Sarah, his wife. And, of course, there's the Abraham telling the half-truth that Sarah is not his wife, but is his sister. Sarah was the half-sister of Abraham, but she was his wife. Uh, so he lies and says, she is not my wife, she's my sister. And Pharaoh takes uh, Sarah to himself. And then that would be an obstacle. That would be an obstacle if Abraham loses his wife to Pharaoh. So what happened? God sends plagues on Pharaoh, and it's revealed that, uh, that she is the wife of Abraham. And so Pharaoh kicks Abraham and Sarah, gives Sarah back, and kicks them out of Egypt. So that's the first obstacle that we encounter, Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. The second obstacle we encounter is Lot. And in chapter 13 and 14 of Genesis, uh, Abraham returns back to the land of Canaan only to get into a major dispute with his nephew Lot. In chapter 13 over grazing rights, and no sooner is this problem resolved that he has to go into battle against a coalition of northern kings who have taken Lot as one of their prisoners of war. So now Abraham finds himself in a literal war and battle. That's not his battle to fight. I mean, this is Lot, you know, but he's going and rescuing Lot as being from being a prisoner of war. Again, there is an implication, and it's not, you know, specifically mentioned here, you know, but scholars have speculated that, you know, obviously one of the reasons possibly that Abraham goes and fights to rescue Lot is that the promises might would be fulfilled through Lot. But either way, that's the second obstacle that we take up two chapters here of Genesis, chapter 13 and 14, uh, first with the dispute against Lot, and then uh, raising a battle against this coalition of northern kings. So after the number two obstacle is taken care of with Abraham victorious, now we find the third obstacle. And the third obstacle is, even after all this, you know, Obviously, Lot is not going to be this promised seed, you know. So Abraham is talking to God, and God is talking to Abraham, and it's again revealed that God's going to bless him, and this is going to happen. Well, now he's saying, well, God, none of these promises have happened yet, you know, and I still don't have a child. Um, and then he looks at the servant that's in his house, Eliezer. And Eliezer, he says, well, I do have one that is in my house that will be my heir when I die. Eliezer will get this inheritance. After the separation of uh, Abraham and Lot, we, this, Eliezer is going to get it. He says, so he will be the heir. He will be the son. No. God says he will not be the son. God tells Abraham here that you will have a son. So we find here in the beginning of chapter 15 that Eleazar is not the promised son, this heir through who the promises would come through. It's going to be a son of Abraham's own. And it's in chapter 15 that we have the confirming of this covenant. This leads into a covenant ceremony 
made with Abraham in chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 5 and 6, this is important. God brings Abraham outside and he says, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, and of course, he's not able to number the stars, then God says to him, so shall your offspring be. So God's reaffirming to him a great nation is going to come out of you. You're going to be the father of many nations. Your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven. You were later telling me it would be as numerous as the sands of the sea. So we see this promise. And it's in this moment that Abraham believes God. It's in this moment he believes God. And then it says, because Abraham believed God, it was counted toward Abraham as righteousness. That now Abraham stands as righteous before God because of his belief in what God said. And this concept plays, again, a major part when we come over into the New Testament, when it comes to being declared righteous through Jesus Christ. That we're not declared righteous through our own merits. We're not declared righteous through our own works, but we're declared righteous through our faith. The promises of God were made to Abraham by faith. Abraham received them by faith, by believing what God says. Now he put his faith to action, and his faith worked as he obeyed God, as he left where he was supposed to leave, as he does the things that that God puts in front of him to do. He proved his faith by his actions. But Abraham was justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. We find that in Romans chapter 4. The law was not given yet. This covenant of Abraham was an unconditional covenant, and it was an eternal covenant. And the new covenant through Jesus really is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Because the basis of the new covenant that we have in Jesus is that we are justified by our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. So Abraham becomes a model of those who are justified by faith apart from works. Then after he takes him out and he looks at the stars of heaven and Abraham believes God, then at the end of chapter 15, it recounts the actual ratification of the covenant between the Lord and Abraham. Again, the land was guaranteed. So what you find in these journeys is that God is over and over again reaffirming, these are my promises. Your, your offspring is going to be as the, the stars of the heavens. I will give you this land to you and your children. I will make a great nation out of you. God is reaffirming his promises. So the land is guaranteed to Abraham, but yet he's also given information that the land would not actually come into his possession for another 400 years. So again, I would ask God, why the delay? God, they're already there. Why the delay? But that's how it's working out. They would not come into the possession of the land for several hundred years after this. To ratify the covenant, we have this uh, occasion here where animals are killed and split into. 
And they're cut apart one from another. Usually, if two people are making a covenant, you know, and they would split the animals, both would walk through, signifying their promise to uphold their end of the bargain. So as Abraham takes these animals and they're, and they're divided, God puts Abraham to sleep. And God himself walks through the pieces of the sacrifices here. So he has to kill five uh, animals traditionally used in sacrifice, split them, lay them out in two lines. Uh, when the birds of the prey try to eat the pieces, Abraham drives them off. Then Abraham goes to sleep. And God is described here as a smoking furnace in a cauldron of fire that passes between the animal pieces. And the promise is repeated. This is important because this is showing that this is an unconditional covenant. God puts Abraham to sleep and God walks through the pieces. In essence saying, I am going to fulfill this covenant. Usually in an agreement between people, both parties would walk through to signify them doing their own part. Here, only God walks through symbolizing that this is an unconditional covenant that God will bring it to pass. So chapter 15 is a very important chapter in the story, and it carries the story on instead of, and it carries the covenant on instead of it getting lost in the obstacles. But we're not done with the obstacles. When we come out of chapter 15, we come into chapter 16. And then we have another alternate heir that comes on the scene. In this episode, Sarah suggested that since she was unable to have children, they needed to come up with another plan. All right, so it's not going to be Eliezer, who is a servant in the house. It's going to be one of Abraham's children. Sarah can't have children. So Sarah says, okay, well, let's have a stand-in. It'll still be Abraham's child. So she suggests that the servant, Hagar, she suggests that since she was unable to have children, a different plan, Abraham should follow customary procedure. This is not anything unusual. This is, this is weird to us because we don't do these things. We're not like, okay, we can't have children. Let's have the nanny, you know, stand in for the wife. You know, we don't traditionally do things like that within this type of context. But it's not unheard of back in these days. This is thousands upon thousands and thousands of years ago. The world is much different. So Hagar serves as a substitute wife in order for the line to be continued. And in this manner, Ishmael was born, a full and legitimate son of Abraham by the customs of today. This would have been considered Abraham's son. Uh, but this was Sarah's idea, not Abraham's idea. Sarah gets jealous because now there's Hagar and Ishmael. So she gets jealous and Hagar runs for her life. After an encounter with the angel of the Lord, Hagar receives a promise that her seed would be multiplied. Here's one thing we need to understand. God's not upset with Hagar and Ishmael. He's not upset with them. He, the angel of the Lord, it specifically says the angel of the Lord. That, that usually is an is a, you know, Old Testament code for the pre-incarnate Christ himself goes and finds Hagar and gives her this promise on that Ishmael uh, that her seed would be multiplied as well. Um, so that's just 
an interesting fact in the story that he doesn't, you know, condemn Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, and it, but the angel Lord tells her to go back. So Hagar goes back to Sarah, and that is uh, where Ishmael is birthed. And I think they stay there for about 13 more years at this point. As we leave chapter 16, and we, we kind of overcome obstacle number four, then we confirm the covenant again. In chapter 17, it's at this point that God changes Abram's name to Abraham, and he changes Sarah's, Sarai's name to Sarah. And I know, Ms. David, I know you mentioned the changing of the names. Um, Abram means exalted father. That's just the meaning of the name. Abraham means the father of many, because he would be the father of many nations. Um, it's interesting, both Abraham and Sarah, really the only difference is, is that the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, hey, is put into both of their names. Uh, depending on who you're talking to, if you talk to a Jewish person, Jewish people would say, well, the, the letter hey is, an, is a letter that means divinity. So God put divinity both in their names. You know, that may be true and interesting. Uh, I don't think that's the context here. Uh, Sarai means princess. Sarah, when you're just talking linguistically, means princess as well. So the meaning of the actual name doesn't change, but in the context of changing, Abram to Abraham, he goes from exalted father to father of many. Sarah from princess goes to princess of many. So really, he's just reiterating that through Abraham and Sarah, they are both going to have children and many children. So we have the uh, Abraham's name changes from Abram to Abraham, from exalted father to father of many. God reiterates the covenant promises to Abraham that he will be a father of many nations and that he will give land to his offspring. So again, this is all about offspring and land, offspring and land. God reiterating the promises. And, he, and it's here he institutes the covenant of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Then God changes Sarah's name to Sarah from princess to princess of many uh, and declares that she will have a child within the next year. Okay, God, now we're getting a time frame here. Within the next year, she is going to have a child. And Abraham responds by laughing uh, that in the next year we're going to have a child. So uh, we still have a sense of humor even in uh, 1200 BC. Uh, so the uh, reconfirming of the covenant. Obstacle number five comes in chapter 20. Now this is almost kind of a replay of what we've had before with Pharaoh. In chapter 20, Abimelech is a king of uh, Gerar and sent and took Sarah after Abraham again claimed she was just his sister and not his wife. But this time, God comes to Abimelech in a dream to warn him uh, that this is Abram's, Abraham's wife and uh, tells him to return Sarah to Abraham. So Abimelech again returns Sarah and they're removed. So we have this other obstacle. And this is, we know this, but this is going to play out again in the life of Abraham's son. So that's obstacle number five. Then finally, in chapter 21, we have the promise realized. Isaac, the promised son, is born. And you would think at this time, we'd be like, oh, finally, we're here. Everything is good. No more problems. 
That's not the case at all. The suspense is not over. Uh, number one, because we find out quickly that Ishmael is mocking Isaac, and he's not. Uh, there's still some. Then there's some contention there, and when there's contention between uh, Ishmael and Isaac, Sarah gets mad again and tells Abraham, "You need to cast out Hagar and Ishmael." Uh, and that's exactly what happens this time. Hagar and Ishmael is is cast out and thrown out of the house. Um, so we thought everything would be great. Immediately it's not great. And then we come to obstacle number six. Just when it seems that all is well, the largest and most difficult problem imaginable looms over the horizon. All the previous obstacles and threats came from human error or decision. This one came from deity. This obstacle comes from God himself. God would test Abraham by asking him to offer his promised son Isaac as a human sacrifice. So again, we're probably very familiar with this story. God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son, and offer him as a sacrifice. So what does Abraham do? I hope the first thing Abraham does, which we're not told in the Bible, is say, God, are you crazy? I'm not going to do this. And then he took a moment. That would be my response, okay? But that's not what Abraham does. It's not recorded. What Abraham does is he takes Isaac and he gets what they're going to sacrifice and he says, let's go up on this mountain. We're going, and this is what Abraham says. He says, we're going up on the mountain to worship. That's what he says. We're going up on the mountain to worship. I probably wouldn't view sacrificing my only child as worship, but he's sacrificing an offering. So what does Abraham do? He takes Isaac and they go up on the mountain to sacrifice. And as they are as they're preparing the sacrifice or preparing the area for sacrifice, Isaac looks at Abraham and he says, where is the sacrifice? And if I hadn't stopped now, when my kid asked me, where's the sacrifice? I would probably say, I don't know. This is not a good idea. Let's go somewhere else. I don't think I can handle my own child asking me, where's the sacrifice? Knowing that you're the the sacrifice. So there's a lot of disturbing things from a human standpoint uh, in this story. But he says this, he said, God will provide a sacrifice. That's what Abraham says. God will provide a sacrifice. So then he takes Isaac and he binds him up and he lays him and he's getting ready. So now Isaac's probably thinking, okay, this isn't good. But as he's getting ready to sacrifice, of course, he's interrupted. There's a ram called in the thicket. God provided a sacrifice. God was testing Abraham. This is a great obstacle. And this functioned as a test to provide the opportunity for Abraham to demonstrate, number one, his faith in God and his fear of God. For all the other obstacles and tests up to this time, they're working toward gaining something. Abraham was obedient because he was going to gain a son. He was going to gain a family. He was going to gain a land. You know, and we can believe God as long as we have nothing but stuff to gain for our belief. But in this instance, Abraham had something to lose. And it's harder when God tests our faith to let go of something that we held precious and dear. So here there is something to lose, but yet Abraham proves himself 
as obedient to God's promise. Show that he was motivated by faith and the fear of the Lord. Then we're told when we go to the New Testament in Hebrews 11, that Abraham even believed that God could raise the dead. And if he was to sacrifice his son, that God would raise him from the dead and still fulfill his promise. That was Abraham's faith. But we know that God stopped Abraham before that and provided another sacrifice for him. Um, And then once the threat was resolved, the promises were repeated again to Abraham. And these are our major obstacles that have come in the way, and we've overcome all of these obstacles. Um, In chapter 23, we have the death of Sarah. Uh, The remaining sections of the account of Abraham continue to offer events pertaining to the establishment of the covenant, though the suspense, much of the suspense had been broken. Chapter 23 records the death of Sarah, and there's a lot of time spent on the death of Sarah and burying Sarah. And why is that important? I hate to say this, but chapter 23 really isn't about the death of Sarah. It's about the purchase of land. For what we find here in chapter 23 is that it records the only time when Abraham purchased land in Canaan. He purchased a field and he purchased a place to bury Sarah. Um, since the acquisition of land was part of the covenant promises, it's important to tell of this first instance. So we, we, we see Abraham buying land in Canaan, and he buries Sarah in the land of Canaan. Um, obstacle number seven, and we'll, talk, we'll expound a little bit more on this next week when we talk about Isaac and Jacob. Uh, obstacle number seven, another small obstacle for Abraham to have a big family. Not only must there have been a son, but a son who would marry and have sons of his own. You've got to keep the lineage going. Uh, the obstacle to this was to acquire a wife for Isaac in a way that would neither lead to assimilation with the people of Canaan, nor require Isaac to leave the land. This was accomplished by Abraham's having his servant fetch a bride for Isaac from Abraham's extended family. And we'll cover that more in detail next week. But that's another obstacle of continuing to see the covenant fulfilled. And then what we have uh, is we have in chapter uh, 25, the account of Abram's life ends with the identification of Abraham's other children. Again, these were potential heirs, so the text shows that they were cared for in the inheritance. And finally, Abraham died in chapter 25, verse 8, and is buried with Sarah in Canaan. Amid many obstacles, therefore, the covenant became established. Then at the bottom of that page, we have a handy-dandy little chart. Uh, Abraham, in his 175 years of life, uh, traveled a long way uh, without train, without car, without um, airplane. You see on the Ur of the Chaldeans over there in Babylon, south of Babylon, we have Ur. That's where he was born. He, Terah, took his family and moved them up to Haran. That's the green arrows going up to Haran. And that is where at age 75 that God calls Abraham to leave from there, go to the land. They travel south um, into Egypt and then ultimately back up uh, to Hebron in the land of Canaan where he dies at the age of 175. So uh, that's a lot of distance to travel uh, in the ways they had to travel 
back then, but the journeys of Abraham's life. The last thing I want to leave you with is just a, uh, just another thought, because I love pictures in the Bible. I love parallels. And the Bible is filled with parallels, and some of them are obvious. Some of them are not so obvious. And obviously, Israel, throughout the different phases of their lives, would obviously recall back to these stories, recall back to their heritage. They would recall back to Abraham. They would recall back to when God delivered them out of the hand of Pharaoh and brings them as a nation out of the land of Egypt. Um, So I kind of put here on the back just Abraham's story, Israel's story. Uh, Many of the episodes highlight how Abraham's story mirrors Israel's story. For one thing, even though Abraham is called by God, his behavior is questionable in some of these instances, um, and they leave something to be desired which mimics Israel's struggle with God. Israel is called to be God's special chosen nation, but yet oftentimes their behavior didn't match their their calling, but yet God was still with them. Uh, Further, Abraham's trip to and from Egypt clearly mirrors a key episode in the history of Israel, the Exodus, the Exodus out of Egypt. Abraham enters Egypt because of a famine. At the end of Genesis, Joseph is going to enter Egypt. Egypt, Um, as well Joseph and the Israelites at the end of Genesis. So the Israelites go into Egypt because of a famine. Um, Sarah becomes Pharaoh's property, but then he and his household are plagued by God for doing so. So when they're in Egypt, Sarah becomes Pharaoh's property. God sends plagues upon Pharaoh in the story of Abraham, just as he does in the story of the Exodus. Pharaoh wants nothing to do with Abraham's God and summons him to his presence and tells him to leave Egypt, just as another Pharaoh will later summons Moses into his presence and order Moses and his people to leave Egypt. And both Abraham and Israel later would leave Egypt with a lot of loot. They would have a lot of possessions. As Israelites, looking back on their long journey, they see God has a long track record of delivering his people. That's what gave the people in Israel hope throughout the years as they looked back and saw how God delivered his people. And he even delivered Abraham, the first Israelite, from a foreign land. For the people living in the wake of the exile in the time of the Babylonian captivity, remember later on when they were in Babylonian captivity, this was not a punishment that threatened Israel's existence as God's people, but rather was only one example of a pattern of how God has dealt with the Israelites all along. Yes, exile was punishment, but it was not the end. And they know it was not the end because our ancient story says so. We also see in this covenant another preview of the Exodus story. Uh, In chapter 15 of Genesis, we have a smoking firepot and a blazing torch that passed between severed animal halves in chapter 15. Uh, Passing through something divided in half reminds us of the Red Sea or pictures the Red Sea. A smoking flask um, and then uh, flaming, uh, smoking firepot and blazing torch. Look ahead to the pillars of cloud and the fire that we see in the wilderness. All this is in the story of the Red Sea in the wilderness. In fact, we read in Exodus 2 that Israel's deliverance from Egypt was all about God keeping this very promise to Abraham. So there's a picture we may not catch at first, but yet seems to parallel. Uh, Going backward in the story of Hagar, we have Abraham that listened to the voice of Sarah. 
which is an idiom that means he obeyed the voice of Sarah. And then it puts here, the last time a husband in the Bible listened to the voice of his wife, it wound up being a disaster. Adam took a bite out of the forbidden fruit that Eve had offered him. Um, and of course, we saw also that Adam and Eve were in paradise and they were kicked out of the garden. They were exiled. So we have all these different pictures. Uh, and then Ishmael's descendants are destined to be a hostile bunch. That's part of what God tells uh, Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael's descendants were destined to be a hostile bunch, picking fights with everyone around them. The story of Ishmael is certainly busy and multi-layered. One purpose of his story seems to be to explain why the Israelites have this long history of tensions with peoples to the south of Canaan. So just as we read in previous chapters, all these different nations who would end up in conflict with Israel, uh, another Ishmael's descendants would end up in conflict with Israel. So there are these little parallel little things in there that you know just kind of make this, these stories multi-layered. So chapters 12 through 25 are all about the protection of the covenant. It's all about God making sure His promises are fulfilled. And in spite many obstacles, in spite things that seem contrary, God works out His ways and His promises. And I hope that that would encourage us even for the days that we live in, how we do look around us and see, oh, look at how crazy everything looks. This, this is bad. This is not going good. We ultimately need to remember there's one who's in charge above and beyond. And even when there's obstacles, even when there's threats to the promise, nothing is an obstacle to God. And nothing is a threat to God when he's already promised us in his word, his faithfulness. So these are things that we can draw from the parallels, but as far as the gospel story, this is the beginning of the gospel story. It's all about the covenant God made, and it all ultimately leads to Jesus.